weeks is looking at uh, one of the most influential and remarkable statements in the in, in all of Scripture, I would say, uh, which is, as you can see behind me, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is an incredible sermon, by the way. It's an incredible discourse given by the Lord Jesus uh, to his disciples. It's interesting to think about th think about this, by the way, that Jesus said uh, at the end of Matthew, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's interesting, because think about this. If I told you today that what I'm about to tell you in the next few minutes, each and every word that I tell you, all of them are going to be remembered when I'm dead and gone. What are you going to think of me? Every word that I tell you this morning, all of them are going to be written down in history and people are going to be studying it for centuries. If I was to claim, as Jesus did, that, uh, that every sentence I say and speak <coughs> is going to be remembered, um, what would you think? Now, some of you would probably think, well, he's telling a joke. And those who don't know me think, I might be the joke. <laughs> Y'all, that's a little bit funnier. We can roll our shoulders a little bit and lighten up, okay? Because I don't, I don't mean that. Uh, no one in the history of the world who has ever had their head on straight has ever talked like Jesus talked, claiming that their words have any eternal value. Now, a large part of what I do for a living, a large part of what I do is, 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 is speaking. Yet I'm aware enough to know that when uh, that when the words come out of my mouth, a lot of them uh, fade into the wind, and, and a lot of them are swallowed up by time. I'll give you an example. How many of you remember what I preached about last week without looking at any notes? My goodness. Okay, I was hoping there would be one. Anyway, but that's true, and I know that because even from history, even even presidential speeches, the best of them, the most historically significant of them, most of us probably don't know. They're forgotten unless they've been written somewhere. And even then, we probably don't know them. Do you, does anyone know by heart George Washington's farewell address? Does anyone, does that remind you, or, or, or is your mind sparked on a daily basis? And I remember what George Washington said the day he left office. <laughs> or what about uh, FDR's war message? <clears throat> What about Lincoln's Gettysburg Address? Yeah, all of those are famous presidential speeches, even, even the Gettysburg Address. And the, and the most famous of, uh, of the three might be the Gettysburg Address. And, and a lot of you may be familiar with how it starts. Uh, four score and seven years ago, I'm having to read it, by the way. Our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation. How many of y'all knew that that's how it started? It's okay not to know. I'm like, you're not going to be, you're not going to go to hell for not knowing how the Lincoln, how the Gettysburg Address started, by the way. But most of the contents of that speech beyond that, uh, we, 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 the average American probably couldn't tell you, and, uh, and and most of us don't even know what the word fourscore means. By raise of hands, who knows what fourscore means? Who doesn't know what fourscore means? <laughs> Four, a score is 20, and four score means, a, and four score, four times 20 is 80. And so uh, 87 years ago. And so that's what four score is. 
nevertheless, uh, that's that, that's what we uh, that's what we come to. That's what we think. But uh, when it comes to th- these famous presidential speeches, but it's not so with Jesus, by the way. And, and that's a remarkable thing. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that this is this is just, this is this carpenter's son? Um, probably born uh, before Mary and Joseph were even married. So probably born out of wedlock. This this Jew was from some nowhere town in the Middle East called Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago and lived, by the way, fewer years than what's required to be president of the United States. He was 33 when he died on the cross. You have to be 35 to be the president. He was younger than any president. Uh, this this young guy who, uh, who 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 said these eternal claims. How is it that his words are as alive today as oxygen in the air? Something different about him, isn't there? Something different about him. I was just speaking with the Sunday school this morning, and it was and, and it was uh, it had come through my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm reading through the Gospels, and I've and I, and we see all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus has said, and it sparks on me, man. Jesus did all this and said all of this, and he was younger than I am now. He was 33 when he ascended. 34. He did all this and said all of this. As, a, as an extremely young man. And, and, and by the way, I don't care how long you've gone to church or how, how much or how little you and I have studied the Bible. Uh, we've probably all heard or at least a teaching, if not all the teachings, of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is so influential, by the way, that the website called The Art of Manliness. The Art of Manliness has named it one of the top 35 most influential discourses or speeches in history. So the question is, what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? What's it all about? And I think that's what we're going to look at in this series. What's it all about? Here's the short answer. Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about Pharisees. It's not about Sadducees. It's not about the disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus. A longer answer is that it's about Jesus' authority. It's about Jesus, it's about uh, his truthful and his powerful authority and why you and I should submit to him. And so today's passage, what we're going to be looking through in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is simply the kind of character that Jesus blesses. The kind of character that Jesus blesses. And we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So you can go ahead and turn there uh, today. Uh, turn there, and we'll, and we'll stand and read it in just a moment. But while you're turning there, I want to uh, begin just like this. Uh, and so in your mind, while you're turning there, and while you're thinking, I want you, uh, I want you to, kind of, to, in your mind, list out some character traits um, that you admire, maybe that you admire in your spouse, or maybe that you admire in, uh, maybe that you'd like to have in you, or in your children, or in, or in your friends. What kind of character traits? Character traits that you wish you, you wish that you could you wish could be there. You might think of things like loyalty, or faithfulness, or trustworthiness, or kindness. You know, we like people who are agreeable. We like people who are energetic. We like people who are funny. We like people who are intelligent or sensitive. And those are solid, by the way. But if you think about traits like, I want him to be courageous. Husbands or wives, 
when you met your husband and when you got married, is that a trait that you automatically thought of that you wanted your husband to be like? What are them to be courageous? What about wives? What about having a, a, a gentle temperance? What about them being just? What about having endurance? Do we think those are things that we probably don't think about quite as often? Occasionally, someone may think about something like humility. But what about someone who's humble? Is that a character trait that we thought that we think about? When we think about things that we might humble or meek. What about poor? It's generally not the first thing we think about when we think about an, admir- an admirable character trait, isn't it? Let's stand and let's look at what Jesus says. While you're standing, I want to give props to my to, to my AV guy Sherwood who was having to follow me during that one. That's the only time you have to worry about that one, brother. I was quick on that one. Keep you on your toes. Um, the Bible tells us, and Jesus and Jesus speaks here. When the, he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them, saying, "Blessed are the poor in spirit." For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, your Bibles may say meek, for they will inherit the earth. Our Father, Lord, may you bless our time here this morning as we have your word open. Lord, may you bless our hearts, may you bless our minds, Lord, and have our minds focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Y'all can be saved. So up until this point in the book of Matthew, if you're familiar with it, we haven't we haven't heard much from Jesus except for the the occasional one-line commands or invitations. Uh, we read of Jesus' birth. We read uh, of the nativity. We have the genea- the genealogy there. We read of the wise men and his return to Nazareth. Um, we see of jo- we see John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus, and we see the temptation of Jesus. And and through there, we start seeing Jesus speak, but it's not for any long discourses. It's one line, one sentence here and there. And then we get into the end of chapter number four, and Jesus begins to go all over Galilee, teaching and preaching in their synagogues. He's telling them the good news. This is Matthew chapter four, verse 23. And it says that he's healing every disease. You see that? healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, this is what made Jesus popular, by the way. This is where his popularity began to soar. There were lots of Bible teachers. There were lots of people talking about good news. John the Baptist was another one. There were lots of people teaching and preaching, but there's something special about this guy. There's something special about Jesus. There's something special about someone who's who the Bible says is healing every disease and sickness among the people. But here's what Jesus wants, and what we need to be, what we need to remind ourselves. Jesus wants disciples. He didn't. He wasn't looking for crowds. He wasn't looking for popularity. He was looking for disciples. He's looking for followers, people who faithfully follow after Christ and obey His teachings. He's looking for disciples, and so he called a few men to Himself. 
And so, to, and so to do so, he separated himself from the crowds because the crowds didn't necessarily follow him for the best reasons. Uh, they were curious and eager for healing, but uh, popularity and miracle working wasn't going to fulfill the purpose that Jesus was wanting to, was Jesus had intended to fulfill here on this earth. It wasn't just miracle working and popularity. Jesus had a purpose to fulfill, to make disciples and to die for, to come and to die for his people. Um, he never intended to heal all the physical ailments in Israel. That was not his intention. He sought to raise up true disciples. And so he called his disciples to himself, and he sat down, and he began to teach them in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. That's where we see when he saw the crowds. He, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, the crowds were free to listen into this because, as we see later, there was a larger crowd than just the disciples there. They were free to listen in, but Jesus, but Jesus was talking specifically to his disciples. And what he is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's describing the heart and the mind and the outlook and the values of a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus. And so we look at the kind of character, starting off, that Jesus blesses. So first off, let's look at this, the nature of a blessed character. The nature of a blessed character. Now, each of those Beatitudes, I want you to look at them here. They're not in the PowerPoint, but I want you to look at them in, in, in Scripture there in your Bibles. Notice how each of them, and we're not going through all of them today. We're going just going through the first three. But notice how all of them say blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Do you see that there? That term blessed comes from a it comes from a Greek term that, that can mean a happy disposition. It's, it's something, that's, uh, it's something that, that carries a, uh, the connotation that it brings about joy. And, and, but, uh, but Jesus, has, but, but we, we look at that and we say, well, Jesus says blessed are those who mourn. So he can't be talking about just some kind of general ordinary happiness, the happiness that comes from food or entertainment. I like good food. But he, so he's not talking about that or entertainment in mind. Jesus, Jesus, his happy disciples, so to speak, are poor and they're hungry. These blessed disciples, these joyful, happy disciples, they mourn and they suffer persecution. So for his disciples, happiness means something so much different than we think about just general happiness. Happiness is, is something more. It's, it, it's wholeness and integrity. Even in the darkest hour, even in the darkest times, his disciples still find joy. That's what you and I need to be mindful of. Jesus said, blessed are those, joyful are those, happy are those who go through these difficult situations because they're, they're finding their joy in more than circumstances and physical things. They're finding their joy in Christ. And so you and I you ought to be interested in pursuing this concept of happiness. You and I ought to be interested in pursuing this concept of joy. Uh, we certainly do pursue happiness in other ways. We seek it in better food. We seek it in funny jokes. We, uh, we, we, we look for exciting vacations or movies. Think about an amusement park for a second, the place that we go to to find happiness. That's the place where we lay down large sums of money for the privilege of standing in long lines on 90, 100 degree asphalt pavement to sit on a short ride that promises to put your heart in your throat and put your lunch in your lap. <laughs> and we go there to find happiness. <coughs> so what ends up happening is that a trip to the amusement park it actually turns into a chore. And we end up coming home tired than when we went. 
How many of our vacations are like that, where we end up coming home more tired than when we went? The vacation was designed for us to rest and get away, but we end up coming home more exhausted than when we left. I like a vacation, by the way. I like going out and doing things. But it goes to show us that our pursuit of happiness may be best found when we're not necessarily looking for it in the places where we think we'll find it. Jesus tells us that real happiness, that real joy, that real blessedness comes from the nature of a blessed character, which is maturity. The nature of a blessed character is maturity. It's Christian maturity. And it can be it can be a precarious thing to seek and look for happiness in external things that, that seem to promise happiness. Um, because the, it's, it's precarious because those things can be alienated from us. And uh, there was a, there was a once a young model who said that if I weren't so beautiful, maybe I would have more character. That's more often than that. That happens more often than you think. And that was 30 years ago when she was 30. And hopefully she's found time in the last 30 years to work on some character since then. So from a personal standpoint, you and I need to strive to develop character and mature character in Christ, maturity in Christ. And that means facing the difficulties that, that, that God allows to come our way, facing those difficulties with faithfulness rather than complaining. God sends those things, God sends those difficulties to us. Blessed are the poor, those who mourn, those who are meek. God, God sends those opportunities to us to, to, to be in those, those situations to grow us and to mature us. You and I should care about having a mature character. You and I should care about being a growing disciples in Christ because the Lord cares about it. Jesus says that some, the one who is mature is one who is blessed by God. That's the nature of it. Secondly, I want you to look at something else. There's a unity there. There's a unity there. The unity of a blessed character. You know, I don't want you to, I'm not, I'm not saying this to stomp on toes or anything, just to point out just something that, that's, uh, uh, that can be observed, that uh, even dedicated Christians sitting in Bible studies um, it, it's, it's not often when they say that they aspire to the blessed traits. Uh, how often do we say, I aspire to be poor in spirit? How often do you and I say that we aspire to more? It's not often. It's truth. I mean, it's, it's not often that it happens. Um, how often do we say, we probably say it a little more often that we desire to be humble or meek. But even still, that's, uh, uh, that's not something that we, that, that, we, that we think about every day if we're honest with ourselves. Um, so why does Jesus bless those? And why is this the first thing that he named out? The poor in spirit, those who mourned, those who were meek or, or humble. Why does he mention those first? The answer is, is that these are kingdom virtues. These are kingdom-minded Virtues, And uh, so we should expect them to be different than the virtues we think about uh, more often. 
We should think about these, these beatitudes, which is what they're called. We should think about these beatitudes as, as a description of a whole person, that everyone should be seeking after the virtues of being poor in spirit, uh, after being, uh, being mournful, and we'll talk about that more in just a little bit, of being meek and, and the rest of them there, and I'll talk about, about them more in the weeks to come. These Beatitudes do more than describe a disciple. They describe, by the way, they describe Jesus, the Master. Jesus, uh, Jesus told his disciples to pattern his, to pattern their lives, excuse me, after himself. In Matthew chapter ten, it's not on the not on the screen. He tells his disciples to say, excuse me. He tells his disciples, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the student to be like his teacher, and the servant to be and the servant like his master. Jesus was one of those who experienced the mourning. He was one. Of, he was. He was the most meek person. Um, he, he said, "Blessed are those, are those who mourn." And he and Jesus mourned uh, that the people were like sheep without a shepherd. He says, "Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth." He was meek. He was humble. He laid a gentle and easy yoke on his people. He said, "Blessed are those who hunger and who are merciful and who are pure in heart and who are peacemakers." And those who are persecuted. Jesus was one who was persecuted. He was slain on a cross because of his faithfulness to the Lord. The only beatitude, by the way, that Jesus never claimed for himself, not that I could see in Scripture, was blessed are the poor in spirit. And to be poor in spirit, by the way, is to be, uh, is to, is to, uh, be aware of our spiritual neediness. Um, Jesus certainly needed, Jesus certainly had the... Uh, the Spirit's strength sustaining him for his ministry. Um, we see we see the Spirit of the Lord uh, coming with Jesus and alongside of Jesus throughout his ministry. But Jesus was never poor in the Spirit, not in ways that we are. So this reminds us of something, and we should be mindful of this, is that you and I can become, grow in and become more Christ-like uh, every single day, but there's always going to be a gap there that remains between the Creator and His creatures. There's always going to be a gap there. He was never poor in spirit. You and I will never, uh, will never be as rich as Jesus is in spirit. And so what Jesus doesn't, uh, Jesus doesn't share that gap with us. What He does is that He bridges that gap. He bridges the gap between us and our Creator. He reaches out to those who are poor in spirit to teach them and to heal them, to teach us and to heal us. It's God designed that we should aspire to a character that's more like the character of Jesus. But because you and I won't get there, the beauty is that Jesus bridges that gap for you and me. And he, God wants us to pursue that goal, and He gives us grace for the journey. He makes it a pretty, he makes the journey of becoming more like Christ a privilege rather than a burden. It's by grace that God sent His Son. It's by grace that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It's by grace that He taught that He atoned for sin. It's by grace that He that He was raised from the tomb. It's by grace that the Spirit was sent to testify to Him. It's by grace that God completes His work by changing our hearts so that we can love Him and believe. And that's how we become more like Christ from head to toe, from our hearts to mind, by God's grace. It's God's grace that makes us more like Christ. And it's grace that holds these Beatitudes together. I want you to notice something, and I'll point this out more over the, over the coming weeks. But there's a larger outline that can go through these Beatitudes. Notice the verse 3 ones that we're going to be looking at today. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek or the humble. 
Those are beatitudes of need, of spiritual need. And then the fourth one is a uh, the fourth one is is God's promise to meet that need. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And then the last ones, as we'll see, describes the result of a, of that fourth one. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Those are the result of what's happening in that fourth one. So the unity of what we're seeing today, the unity of, the, of these first three blessed um, character traits are blessings for those in need. So let's look at that for a little bit. Just for a little bit. Let's look at this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You see that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor, by the way, is not poor personality. As if God favored those who were shy or those who were nervous, those who were cowardly. It's, it's, it does, it's not talking about that. Yes, yeah, some of us are naturally shy. Some of us may, may have more anxiety than others. Um, some, of us may, uh, some of us may struggle with bravery more than others. But that's not, that's not what poor that, that Jesus is talking about. The, 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 uh, the, the trait that uh, Jesus is talking about are those who have this self-acknowledged weakness in spirit. We can be tough and we can be tenacious and we can endure to the end, but, but still be poor in spirit. However strong these disciples may be, however strong you and I may be, true disciples are aware that we are still spiritually needy. True disciples are aware of their sin and their inability to reform themselves and to make themselves more like Christ. Whatever mine and your strengths are, you and I know that we still need God's grace and we still need God's mercy. And so we have to lay that pride that we may have aside. And we have to pray, God, whatever my strengths, I am still poor. However much I have, I'm still poor in spirit. I need your grace, Lord. I need it, your grace to live. I need it now. I need it forever, Lord. I need your grace. No matter how much we're able to do, no matter how strong you and I can, can be, we need God's grace to be able to continue. And so when you and I take our, our spiritual poverty to God, as, as, as Jesus points out here, Jesus makes them rich. Give them the grace that they see. The Lord says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who know that they, that they have spiritual need. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Think about heaven for a minute. What the Bible says about heaven. How glorious and and, and the, how, how glorious it is and the splendor of it. Blessed are those who, who who realize their spiritual poverty and how much they need the Lord. Because when they realize that how much they need the Lord need the Lord and how much they seek out the Lord to give, my goodness, how rich they're going to be. That's an incredible truth, isn't it? Blessed are those. Blessed are those who are poor. And then the first beatitude goes to the second one. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. This, this means that Jesus, this isn't, uh, this isn't uh, mourning as we think uh, um, that, uh, uh, that, that, that can happen over any, just any typical situation. Um, mourning, there's mourning that happens that God does not bless. You know, criminals mourn over their arrest. 
Um, corrupt politicians may mourn their loss of power. God doesn't provide promise to comfort everyone who mourns for every reason. He says, blessed are those who mourn over their weakness and their sinfulness. Blessed are those who mourn over the fact that they, even though that, that, that they continue to pursue Christ, there's still sin there. Blessed are those who have sinned, who have sinned in their life and they mourn over them. Paul rebuked the Corinthians for sins in his first letter, and they mourned over that and they repented. And so he says, I'm rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin because that mourning leads to repentance and turning to Christ. You were grieved as God willed, Paul says, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. And so what he's saying is that the types of mourning that the Lord does bless is that when his disciples, they mourn over their own sins, or they mourn over the sins of their brothers and sisters, or they mourn over their sins that's in, that may be in their church, or they mourn over sins that, that are in society, or they mourn over sins, the sin of being indifferent to the gospel. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus mourned this way. In Matthew chapter 23, he mourned Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. He's pronouncing woes to Jerusalem. And then David as well in Psalm 119, 136, he says, My eyes pour out streams of tears because people do not follow your instruction. This is the kind of mourning that God that, 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 excuse me, that God blesses because it leads God's people away from sin. It's far better, by the way, to mourn over sin than to be indifferent to it. Jesus says these mourners are going to be comforted. That is, God's going to mourn those, uh, God's going to comfort those who mourn over what they should be mourning over. What you and I should be mourning over what should grieve you and you, you and I. Our sins. He forgives those sins if we repent from them. He cleanses us from those sins. And he begins now and he finishes and he finishes when we meet him. And finally, he's going to cleanse this world at his return. He's going to cleanse this world and we're going to rejoice with him. Blessed are those who mourn. Does your sin cause you to grieve? Beloved, you may be missing out in, on a, in an incredible blessing because we over because you may be overlooking your sin without grieving over it. Whatever sin that may be, by the way, it may seem small, small and, may, and it may seem minuscule, but whatever sin that may be, that sin sent your Savior to the cross. And how often do we overlook it? How rare, how often do we confess our sin before the Lord? That we spend time in prayer naming it out. You're missing out on a blessing and joy and, and, and spiritual happiness that comes from the Lord. Because you're not taking time 
to point out this, to, to recognize the sin in your life. And that then leads to the next beatitude. Because when we recognize the sin in our life and grieve over it, it brings humility. Jesus said, blessed are the humble. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When Jesus moved from blessed are those who mourn to blessed are the humble, there should be there should the, the connection. You should be able to see that those who truly mourn over their sin are going to be meek. They're going to be humble, uh, just as with those who are poor in spirit. We can't think of uh, meekness as just a personality trait. Um, a meek personality, it suffers. What, what it does is it suffers indignities without without any sort of complaint. It always aims to please. It never asserts itself. But for Jesus, meekness is 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 more than just a, a personality. Uh, meekness is part of the character of a disciple, uh, not just their disposition. And so, as as part of their character, it's the opposite of any selfish ambition, or is the and it's the opposite of any envy. And meekness is gentle. It's uh, it, it's humble. It's unassuming. It's one who knows and is aware of their spiritual poverty, and it lets that it lets that 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 spiritual poverty and that awareness guide their behavior and how they follow Christ. Jesus, by the way, who was meek and who was who was humble, he was also in his meekness, and you and I should be bold. And at times he was confrontational. There are going to be times when you and I are confronted with a false gospel, and we need to be able to stand there. And you can still stand in the face of a false gospel and false teaching and worldly teaching and still be meek and humble. It's hard to do, by the way. Because our natural tendency is to raise our swords to fight. But what did Jesus tell Peter when he raised his sword against the Roman soldier? When he cut it, when, when Peter cut the ear off of the, of, the, uh, of the guard. Jesus said, Peter, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Jesus never backed down from them. Jesus didn't run away. How so? How can we be a person who is, who can be forceful, and yet still meek? How can we be someone who is influential, as Christians should be, and yet still meek? And the answer to that is, is why? Why are you going? To, why are you being forceful? What in, what, what's the purpose of it? The answer is, are you using your influence for God? Or are you using that influence for yourself? A meek person can still be forceful. A meek person can still stand their ground. Jesus isn't saying someone who cowers at, at, in the sight uh, of, of an enemy. When Satan comes, when Satan came to tempt Jesus, just back in the previous chapter, Jesus didn't cower down. Jesus stood his ground. To be meek is not to cower down and to let people walk all over you. To be meek is to say, I am, I am, I am standing for the Lord, not myself.
So he says, the meek will inherit the earth. It's interesting that the first beatitude promises a future blessing, and the second and the third one promise a, uh, a present, uh, excuse me, the first one promises a, a present possession, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and then the second and third one are, are a future promise. We enjoy some of the privileges of being a kingdom of being in the kingdom of heaven, but we do wait for the fullness of it. We enjoy some of the things that Jesus has given us. Some of you may be mourning now over his personal sin. Some of you may, some of you are, are still working on the meekness and the humility. I know I am. And here's the big question. Here's the question that you and I must be confronted with: is that do you have the kind of character that Jesus blesses? Jesus said that you know you're blessed if you're poor in spirit, if you're more of your sin, if you're humble. You know you're blessed. Because if you understand and if you feel your need for God, you're not going to be bold. You're not going to be bold in a selfish way. You're not going to be self-assertive in a selfish way. You're not going to be some kind of macho man or woman, but you're going to be humble, which is not someone who says, by the way, as I said, walk over me, but rather someone who says, let me walk a mile with you. Do we have that kind of character that Christ bless, blesses? And you can tell how truly blessed you are based on your attitude toward yourself. Do you believe what Jesus teaches here? Do you believe, uh, the, 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 or, or are we falling for the most prevailing lie of our times to express yourself, to believe in yourself, to realize the, power, to realize the powers that are uh, in, in you, to be arrogantly self-confident, to be arrogantly self-reliant, to be arrogantly self-assured. Do we believe those lies? Do we believe the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve, you'll be like God if you'll just eat this forbidden fruit? Jesus told his disciples this, and I think it's very telling. In this parable in Luke, he said, two men, two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. I'm not greedy. Thank you that I'm not greedy. Thank you that I'm not unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off could not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me of sin." sinner so why in the world would Jesus say something like this and I believe this is why he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else and the point of that parable is the same point of these first three Beatitudes. And it's this and this simply, that no one gets into the kingdom of heaven unless they recognize their need for Jesus no one gets into heaven unless you recognize that you can't do it by yourself. No one gets God's grace. No one gets God's mercy. No one gets salvation until you realize that you need it. <clears throat> you 
No one can squeeze through the eye of that needle that Jesus mentioned. No one can squeeze through the eye of that needle unless they give up all the baggage that fattens us and weighs us down and, 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 and bogs down our soul. No one can get there. Whether it's possessions or pride or self-love or self-righteousness, no one gets it unless you, unless you come to the realization that you can't do it. You need God. As the great hymn says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. Wash me, Savior, or I die.